0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel from the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, a professor of economics at the University of San Francisco. My guest today is Scott Rosell. Scott is a senior fellow at Stanford's Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies and co-director of the Stanford Center on China's Economy and Institutions. He has been conducting economic research in China for around 40 years, since the start of China's post mao reform era, and has published prolifically in social and natural science journals. His academic research um, over this time has always been focused on the Chinese countryside, and I think uh, he's probably spent more time on Chinese farms than any other uh, foreigner I know, uh, unless they actually like joined the revolution and, and went to live on a commune. Um, his new book is called Invisible China, How the Urban-Rural Divide Threatens China's Rise. The title gets straight to the point, so let's dig in and find out more. Welcome, Scott. Glad to have you with us.
2: Peter, it's nice to, to be with you, and uh, it's uh, uh, looking forward to our talk.
1: Yeah, so um, in both China and the U.S., it's, it's more common to hear people talking about how China's rise is inevitable these days. You know, that's with some pride in China and with some concern in, in at least parts of the, the U.S. Uh, discourse. Um, you know, you look at their high tech companies, they're incredibly innovative and, you know, at the close to the leading edge in a lot of areas like AI. Um, their cities are full of, you know, skyscrapers and sharply dressed men and women. Um, and they seem to, you know, more recently have done a better job at COVID tr- control than we did. So, you know, what is it that you're saying could go wrong? Why is their their rise under threat?
2: Well, I mean, uh, I've been around long enough. Like you, like you told everyone working on rural China. But you know, I've been in, uh, you know, academics uh, for fifty years, right, counting my time in college and in grad school, and. Um, you know during this time period we saw the soviet union rise and everybody thought it was going to overtake you know the west and of course it you know the berlin wall came down and then we saw in the 1980s when i was in grad school that japan was going to over Come America, and it had all the skyscrapers and the nice suits and uh, and new technological changes with you know in electronics and chem- chemicals and, and automobiles and you know it hasn't grown since nineteen nineties, right? So, um, um, the the big big rise of China is um, you know is incredible, right? Uh, Mainly, it's, you know, it's a, it's a bigger country and uh, and it, it probably has been more multidimensional than the, than these other two countries I just talked about. Um, but, uh, you know, there's no way that China is already there. Uh, they're a middle income country and um, m- moving from poor to middle income, is one thing, right? Moving from middle income to high income, and then to be able to establish a, a, a constant growth path after that, that's, you know, another very difficult thing.
1: So what is, um, yeah, so they've, they've had, you know, incredible success and, you know, uh, millions and millions of people brought out of poverty. Um, so what's, what's the challenge with the next stage?
2: Well, um, you know, when when you go from poverty to middle income, you grow. There's four sources of growth, right? You mobilize inputs. Um, you know, b- bring people from the you know unutilized people in the farm and put them in a the factory and uh, up those output. You marketize. You get rid of inefficiencies, and you get some new technology, right? And you can borrow it, or you can. Uh, Create it yourself. You you grow on all these. That's how you can grow at ten percent a year, like China did for you know thirty years in in a row. Mm -hmm. But once you get to upper middle income and you're moving to high income, um, this is a a totally new you know economic phase, and growth happens from one and one only way only, and that's. Productivity growth, and it's either through new technologies. Yeah, you can still borrow them, but you got to create a lot of them yourself. Number one, and two, um, you you need the, the the enterprises to adopt them and to use them and to have the labor force to be able to, uh, to, to 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 utilize those. And and what I look at in invisible China, as you know, is is China's labor force. <laughs> And this is, you know, the entire labor force, 800 million people between the ages of 18 and 65. Is China's labor force ready for this new phase when it's a high-skill, high-wage, high-technology-driven economy? Um, can, you know, the the the, the Chinese, uh, the, the laborers in this labor force, can they adapt and, and drive this economy forward?
1: So... Um, so what that sounds like, you know, so it's education is a big part of that. Um, you know, there's been lots of, uh, headlines about the high quality of China's education system. And certainly we see, you know, uh, I mean, not the past, less so the past couple of years, but lots of, you know, uh, incredibly smart Chinese people, um, coming to the U S, you know, getting uh, graduate undergraduate graduate degrees and going back. So, you know, where's the, where's the problem?
2: Yeah. So, uh, I don't study that part of the education system and, uh, definitely, I mean, China has a, a, a large and growing, uh, college educated, you know, population and, uh, they have a lot of really, really smart guys. And, um, uh, uh, that uh, my colleague, uh, uh, here at Stanford, uh, Prashant Loyoka has written extensively on this. Hongbin Li has written a lot on this. There's problems in the system, but they, they, they do. That's not where the problem is, right? Um, but because you remember of China's 800 million people, only 12% of them ever been to college. Um, 88% of them have never been to a day of college. In fact, the thing I look at is 70% of them haven't been to one day of high school. Right, so 0.7 times 560 million people are—they're not even high school dropouts, Peter. They're—they're—they're junior high grads or junior high dropouts. Okay, Mm -hmm. and they don't have math skills. They don't have computer skills. They don't have uh, science. They don't, these are the skills that you need to do two things. First of all, to to take over some of the jobs in in a high tech, high wage economy. Yet you need some people who still, right? Flip hamburgers, turn, make jowdzes, or, you know, um, uh, uh, do landscaping and nanny work but you don't need 560 million of them you you need a huge share of them to be able to move into these new jobs um, and th- that 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 if you don't know how to learn how to learn new jobs cuz jobs turn over really quickly it, it, you know the skill the, the speed of change in our economy is if you don't have those skills to learn how to learn new jobs you aren't going to be employable in this and 560 million people in that in, in China's labor force, you know, half of the half of the biggest country, well, they don't have those skills. And I that's what I worry about. And, you know, what are they going to do? And, um, you know, can they commonly prosper, <laughs> uh, you know, with the the rest of the country? And if they don't commonly prosper, they don't enjoy the growth. What's going to happen to them? Well, you know, as we've seen in our neighbors in Mexico, as we've seen in other countries and, you know, the the turkeys, the South Africa's, the, the you know, Brazil's of the world, right, is once they get up there towards upper middle income, they have trouble jumping to high income and their economies stumble and huge unemployment. And guess what? You know, these undereducated people in their economy, you know, either have to go to the informal sector or they, you know, often go into crime or, you know, more socially undesirable activities. And, you know, uh, there's a vicious circle. So that's what I worry about.
1: So um, you mentioned, you know, there's large numbers, um, you know, part of that, there's, you're talking about sort of the, to use econ jargon, the stock versus the flows that there's a lot of people, but I mean, is the isn't the government, uh, you know, building the schools and, you know, putting resources to, to get, uh, I mean, I would have thought they'd been doing it for the past 40 years, but like putting the resources to get people educated so they could, um, you know, even if, even if maybe some people end up having to retire uh, a little early, like the younger people would be ready to take on these, these new roles. Sure. sure. So, so it's kind of, um, <laughs> uh, I, I, I often
2: get asked that question and, and so I, I try to head it off when I give a, a you know a, a set seminar, and I'll say, "Okay, I just told you all these problems, right? Uh, doesn't China's government know about this, <laughs> right?" Mm-hmm. And. And, and then I actually say, yeah, okay, so let's let's look at the flow. Let's look at 15 to 17-year-olds, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, a three-year cohort, there's probably 50 million of them, okay? And so let's look at the 50 million, 15 to 17-year-olds. And in 2005, only fifty. they only had slots in high school for 50% of them okay and and so this is this is engineered in but since 2005 i think they said oh my god we need to have more high school educated kids and they've added 10 million new slots to their to high school since then i mean it's like the size of the country of belgium right Mm -hmm. i mean that's how many new slots and i and and they want they, they want to so that's you know that's really fantastic and Who's filled those slots? Well, it's, you know, in 2005, 90% of urban kids were already going to to school. And so this is the invisible China, of course, is the rural, the -hmm. the, the rural country. And uh, it So lots and lots of these rural kids have been now put into high schools, mostly into vocational high schools, by the way, but that's fine, which is is fine. We have that. uh, There's some quality problems, but of course you expand that fast. You're going to have quality problems. Mm -hmm. The the question I always have is, okay, now we got them in, into these schools. Can they learn? And I don't mean, do they want to learn? It's can they learn math science, uh, computers, et, et cetera. And, you know, a, a lot of the problem is, is that the education up till this point in rural China, you know, um, has been very poor in elementary school and junior high. It's, that it, it, they're very poor schools and rural kids have to go to rural schools. They can't go to urban schools, uh, you know, as it, it, we can talk about that later, but it's even worse than that. I mean, it's, That that China's developed so fast is that, you know, practices of raising their kids have fallen so far behind. Or basically, this is the story I like to tell is. You know, you get a mom in rural China now and she's got her six month old baby in her arms and and you say, "Um, what's your educational aspirations for this kid? I want my kid to go to college. 95 percent of moms of six month old babies want their kids to go to college. Um, You know, half of them end up not even be able to go to high school. Okay, why? Because. China changed from this agriculture society to this urban society so quickly is the cultural, uh, societal, parental practices never caught up. And so while they want their kid to go to college, they're raising them like a little farmer. So they want – they do things to keep their kid safe, not die, and healthy and strong (laughs) – Like a good little farmer, right? While what they need to do is make their kid ready for college by stimulating them, and you know, and and um, sort of working on their reading skills, their cognition skills, their social emotional, you know, skills. That's what you need to to thrive and to get into high school and to get into to, to to college to have the the development skills for that. And it's you know, we have a paper. I'll keep it very short. We have a paper we just published based on 18 studies done in rural China, across rural China. And there's a huge problem of cognitive development among babies. Um, Zero to three, they get to be three years old and 45% 45% of them have IQs less than 90. That's that's a, a tough way, but uh, an accurate way to say it. And if you've got an IQ less than 90, you aren't going to learn high school math, computers and science, right? You, you struggle just to, to, to hang on into into school. So um, this is a problem. China recognizes it as a problem. I don't think they know the real problems behind there, or at least they haven't started addressing them.
1: So they recognize the Uh, the problem of kids not being really prepared for school or not getting good education at school, or do they recognize this sort of early childhood intervention issue? I mean, that's definitely been a sort of new thing um, even in the U.S., the sort of awareness of how how important that is.
2: Yeah, I I call it uh, uh, the 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 biggest new field in economics is babynomics, right? Mm. And, uh, Jim Heckman, you know, uh, and and a lot of his uh, associates have really opened our eyes to that. And we obviously have lots of uh, the, you know the neurologists and psychologists and, and medical professionals worked on it for years, but we're just discovering it, right? Uh, yeah, no, I think that that's it's it's it is a real problem and. Uh, but it's you know it's it's that and that's where we have to start i always say you know get zero to three right and then then you can start working on the rest of the problems but you know china has an education system very much like that of the us and we know all the problems of the us in fact china has 40,000 school districts the united states has 40,000 school districts our school districts here in the United States are all locally funded. So, you know, from property taxes. So if you have high values of property like you in San Francisco, Peter, or me in Palo Alto, Mm -hmm. our schools are incredibly well-funded, right? And the kids get great educations from elementary school all the way through high school. Um, They're not perfect, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. it's a really high quality education. But go out to... Fresno or Bakersfield or you know southern Iowa or Oklahoma or Mississippi right where property values are really low they can't fund those schools right? Well, and the quality of education is really poor. And so, and that's exactly what it is in China. And um, uh, you know, prop, it's not property taxes, it's value added taxes. So if you're in a city and you have big, you know, lots of industrial output and lots of service sectors, you have lots of taxes and you invest into really good schools. But if you're out in a rural school district, right, you have no property taxes. You, you get the little transfer from above and then you do the best you can. And um, you know it's um, the only difference between China and the U.S. is that if you're a kid, if you're a really smart kid that lives in a rural school district, you can't come to the urban school district and get into school,
1: (laughs) right? Why don't you explain that for people who don't know uh, don't know China so well? Why why you know if. If uh, there's been a mass migration from the countryside to the cities, right, the parents going to work in the factories or on the construction sites or whatever. So why don't they just uh, bring their kids with them and, and put them in one of these better quality schools?
2: Yeah, we, I mean, it's part of the book of Invisible China. So Invisible China is rural China, and rural China is, you know, actually, you know, uh, over 60% of China today. Um, one, I would say, one-ninth of the world's population, one every nine people is rural China. So what makes rural China rural, and how are they different from, from urban China? So uh, that's the question you asked. Uh, in China, there's... Uh, a system and it started back in the planning, the fifties, sixties, and seventies of planning time. They they divided the they divided the whole economy into the planned and non-planned economy. And um, the non-planned economy was a rural sector and they basically, you know, were left on their own. They they, they minimized, to, to, to let planning work, they minimized the flow between the cities and the countryside. The city sent them fertilizer and the rural areas sent food back in. And, you know, basically that's it. And then, you know, China was very focused on building big industry and state of enterprise. So they really built up the cities. So duh, 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 duh. Uh, there wasn't a lot of income per capita growth, but certainly uh, the cities were much more developed in 1980 than the than the rural countryside. Now we're going to reform, okay? And you know what they're terribly deathly afraid of is these 800 million peasants or farmers are going to rush into the cities, just like you say. And they're happy to have them rush into cities and work in the factories. You know, it it took 20 years to build enough factories to have jobs for, you know, a lot of these these farmers. But um, during this time, they welcome the farmers to come in and work in the factories or be a nanny or, you know, work in a restaurant and wash dishes, um, sweep the streets. But they wanted to keep the cities service sector for the city people and not for the rural people. So they gave everybody what they call a HUCO or residency permit. Um, It's a card that says rural or urban on it. And if you have a rural card, you don't get any services in the cities. You don't, you can't send your kid to the schools. You can't get health care. You don't get unemployment insurance. You don't get pensions. Okay. And uh, you have to keep your kid in city. So when mom and dad come into the city and get a job, they stay in a dorm or they they rent a house from from a suburban – original suburban village where the, the, the farmer there um, – uh, actually made enough money that that you know he built himself a great big new house they rent out a little house so so thats that's where they live but they can't they have to keep their kids at home and they let leave their kids with their grandma and grandpa and then they go to these local schools
1: uh um, so it's not even just that the uh the parents aren't up to date with parenting techniques but even to the extent they are it's the the kid is a thousand miles with grandma grandma who's yeah, yeah.
2: 30 or 40 depends where you're at in china right but even uh 30 or 40 percent of kids are raised by their grandparents and uh, and yes and those grandparents you know uh, most of them have never been out of if they've had a full primary education, it's lucky. And um, uh, yes, and and you know they grew up on a farm and they raised their kid as a farmer and they know how to raise a kid, right? And mm-hmm. um, and we often say <laughs> uh, what we what we've done, Peter, is you know is seeing this problem of zero to three. You know, we've run studies where we you know get 100 villages and in 50 of them you know we 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 baseline before we start we we take IQ or cognition tests and language development tests of, of these kids and then we randomize and in 50 villages we give them parental training and at first the moms the, the moms and the grandmas sort of ah you know I shouldn't be taught. Talk- why should I talk to my kid why should I read to my kid they don't read and, you know after 6 months a, a year, they really get it. And they're really interacting with their kid. And, and, you know, they say, my kid's the smartest in the whole village. <laughs> and, and when you go back a year later and test them, indeed, the, the, the level of cognitive development is much higher than that in the control group where we don't do anything. Okay. And, uh, so, you know, they, that, that, that's, you know, really what it, now, it, not everybody in your treatment villages does it and moms do it much better than grandmas we I often say our 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 joke we love the grandmas and the grandmas love their kids it's just that they sometimes they can't do the activities we ask them because they can't even read the books to the kids. Uh, sometimes mm. they don't want to because they think they know better. But we, we say, I can summarize one of China's biggest problems in parental training with one word, grandma. <laughs> but mm. gr- grandmas are raising 30 to 40% of Chinese rural kids because of this hukou system.
1: So China needs more tiger bombs.
2: <laughs> uh, yeah, well, you, you know, uh, in our parental training, we, you know, we say, you know, you don't slap the kids around. Right. You, uh, uh, you know, you let them lead you through the book. In fact, we, we, we even say don't read to the kid. Books aren't for reading. Mm-hmm. Books are instruments to help you tell stories and have conversations with your kids, um, and and you know again most of the moms the moms that are twenty five to thirty years old right I mean they they've all been the junior hype some of them been a couple years of high school okay and and they've been in the cities and they have WeChat they've just never. Im- you know, in, they've never learned. Nobody's ever told them that you need to, you know, psychostimulate stimulate your kid. And when they learn that, they're really good at it. And you know what? They're full time moms, too. And so when they come back and have their baby, when they stay in the village before they go back to their factory job, they, you know, they're with the kid. 24 hours a day. And so they have the time to do this and they do a great job um, because suddenly they figure out, Oh my gosh, I have to talk to my kid. <laughs> you know, I have to interact with my kid. I, I don't slam him in a door. And, and you know, that when I play interactively with him, uh, you know that that the kid does even better so authoritative parents are better than authoritarian parents and mm-hmm. um you know there's a little bit of training in that but it's natural in the way these these activities with the kids went. they're they' so it's not you know making you don't sit down and make your kid read for four hours you have to spend four hours with your kid reading with them <laughs> so it's not the tiger mom for for per se
1: right the tiger mom yeah there's a lot of a lot of baggage with that <laughs> With that term and a lot of different ideas but, about what it means, the, the, but in, in, just in the in the, the narrowest sense of just being a, a heavily involved uh, parent who's, who's very concerned with their child's education and, and invests a lot of uh, effort into that, I think. To, okay,
2: so, so let me tell you a real quick story. So, you know, this is our baseline survey. Do you read to your kid, and these moms go. <laughs> They like laugh and they say, "Did I hear you wrong? Did you ask me if I read to my kid?" Of course, I don't read to my kid. They don't talk, right? They they're going to learn to read in school. Okay, that's that's their aunt, Their kid is one year old, right? That's mm-hmm. their answer. Then you're you know you you train you 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 send. We have a trainer, and the trainer goes in once a week with a bag of two toys and a book, and then they teach them these activities. Uh, one activities for cognition development. Ones for language development. Ones for social emotional development. One for motor skills. Fine motor skills. And okay. And, and then you read a story to him and then you go in about a month into it. And if we visit him after I'll, I'll go to these projects, you know, while they're getting started, especially and he said, are you reading to your kid? And they go, yeah, I am. You know, some, are they really understanding, you know, the last time? And then the mother-in-law will be scolding them, you know, and says, don't Waste your time? What are you wasting your time reading to your kid? They'll charge you next month too, right? You know, I mean, the mother in laws, which is the child's grandma, right? Mm-hmm. Is, you know, <laughs> okay, now we go back six months later. Okay, do you read to your kid? Yes. How much? Four hours every day. (laughs) You you read to your kid four hours and he's the smartest kid in the village. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, it's really amazing to see the transformation, you know, and because they're smart women and they care about their kids. And then suddenly they see the transformation of their kid. And then they really I mean, yes, they become a tiger mom. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
1: Well, so, so why don't we um, talk more about like, so you mentioned, you know, you do this, this intervention, um, uh, obviously, you're not like, uh, an education researcher. So so tell us more about like, you know, you, you use you're doing randomized trials with this. And that's, that's kind of where you're coming in as an economist, kind of trying to design the research and, and measure the outcomes. Yeah,
2: so. Um... Uh yeah, so so you know in the early two thousands, uh, we had the rise of you know J Pal and you know and, mm-hmm. at MIT and Harvard and you know they were people I knew and I just thought the you know the world of them and I saw what they were doing is so exciting and then. I mean, if and if you've if you've looked at PayPal, they do a little bit in China, not very much. Mostly they're South Asia, Africa, Latin America, and you know
1: now they're all over the world, right? I guess for people who don't know, is to say this is. Uh, um, You know, the Nobel Prize winners, uh, Uh, Abhijit Banerjee and uh, Esther DiFlo and and others in there. Yeah.
2: I was going to tell you that, that, yes, they won the Nobel Prize two years ago, right? And uh, and it had a big impact. I saw what they're doing. I said, we can do that in China. Right? There's uh, now, you know, you need to have local contacts. Uh, you need to work with the government very close. There's no NGOs. Now, thank goodness <laughs> that college kids, it's really hard to get into college, Peter, but once mm-hmm. you're in the college in China that yeah, you can take a month off. And so we recruit college students to both do our surveys and then implement our projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they'll take two months off of, of school and, you know, we'll train them how to do this stuff. And, that's what we do. So these big randomized trials. So um, when when we were going into elementary school, we would see kids weren't learning very much math. And I took a colleague of mine from Emory University School of Public Health there, and he says, Scott, I think that they have anemia. So this is a, a iron deficiency disease, right? That affects the you know your brain's ability to 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 work right and it, it hurts concentration which you need in school and so he said why don't you you know i did this in guatemala that's what this guy said why don't you give them a multivitamin and see and so we did a randomized trial out in it was, a, it was a 2012 2011 2012 we went to 100 schools we tested their anemia and guess what yeah 48 percent of them were anemic okay and wow. And then we give them a math test and then we randomized fifty schools. We had the teacher teacher take around a pitcher of water and a paper cup and put the put the uh, swallow vitamin in their mouth and they didn't even have chewable vitamins in china at that time and the kids swallowed them and guess what we came back in you know six months and the anemia rates went almost to zero in the treatment school they were still 40 percent in the in the control schools and the math scores went way up <laughs> okay and and you know that's the kind of things that we do we're we're doing that with um you know babies. Now and um, uh, we're doing it with preschool, and um, that you know we're t- really trying to find the ways to overcome you know these problems. So when kids do get into these high schools that China is developing, that they can learn how to learn. Um, but you know the problem is Peter is you know these uh, if they haven't done it yet. But if China launched a zero to three program for the entire country <laughs> today. Uh the kids that would get the training and they'd come out of here and, you know, perfectly normal, it, they wouldn't be into the labor force until 2045. Mm-hmm. Right? And there's a lot of time between now and then. And, you know, that's why I worry about China. <laughs>
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: Yeah. So, um, and also, as you mentioned, like, you know, they, you have to convince people to do it, right? So how, how, uh, how receptive is the, the government to, you know, your advice coming in and saying, hey, I've got fancy dancy, you know, Nobel Prize winning uh, techniques that uh, <laughs> tell you that uh, your kids are uh, kind of not so smart and there's things you, that you can and must do to, to help them. Um, do they appreciate it? Um, uh,
2: sh- sure. Okay. So, um, you know, China's a big country. And right. as you know, there's lots of levels of government. There's local mm-hmm. government and regional government and national government. Yeah, it's like us, right? We have our county government. We have our state government. We have our um, Washington, D.C., right? And that's mm-hmm. the same. Um so, you know, in in the past, uh, and you know, with the deterring US-China relations that that and and other things, you know, that that it's it's held up. But let me let me tell you how, how it was in, in in the past. In the past, there was actually a system it's an old system that was started two or three hundred years ago, where scholars in the the, the nation could write a four page policy brief and said, "We've identified a problem, and we know we we think there's some solutions," and you can send that to the desk of Joe Biden, <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. or to one job al the premier or Lee Chong the premier is is it would go straight you know to their desk and they would read it. Now, who would read it? Probably chief of staff or, or, or staff and or that kind of stuff. But but they would come back to you in two or three weeks and said, ah, this is interesting. Thank you. <laughs> that means they didn't read it. Uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Or they'd say, we put it on our reading list and everybody's going to get a chance to read it. And they say, it might be interesting. Lots of times they'll say, we're going to take policy action on this. And, Mm -hmm. and then they would say, we're also CCing the ministry of education, the ministry of health, um, you know, uh, you know, the the ministry of civil affairs, something like that. Right. And guess what, within two days, the ministry of education would be on your doorstep. Now, they would be on the doorstep of my, my colleagues. Okay. And, and, you know, they wouldn't come to Stanford, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. they Go to Peking University, my colleagues there, or they'd go to uh, Sichuan University, uh, you know, wherever we're doing. So um, and you could have conversations with them. So we did these anemia studies. We did it in Shanxi and the Shanxi, uh, you know, local government said whoa, we've never had such great, you know, uh, um, high school entrance exam scores, you know, we're going to do it. And they started giving, you know, free lunches everywhere. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and um, then, you know, we went to the next neighboring uh, province and said, do you guys want to do this? We had a, uh, I had a former student who was a professor there and their government said, well, it works in Shaanxi. Does it work in Ningxia? Well, you're right next door. But they so we did another study there, and then we did another study in Gansu, the next province over. And after three years, we kept going back to the premier. And guess what? After in 2012, 2013, they launched a national nutritious lunch program for. Uh, 25 million kids it's a five billion dollar program um now other people were working on this as as well as us so it's not just us but uh that's how responsive they they used to be but it's almost a bottom up top down approach and you're you gonna today it's much much harder mm-hmm. to interact with the top level government uh that um that you know that they have their agenda and it's quite it's not always a scholarly exchange you know it's you know it, it has got harder um our the local governments we've worked with them for 20 years right and our you know our local partners um you know like in hunan our local partners in the in the hunan university school of education her students are in the bureaus of education of about 90 of the 120 counties in Hunan. So she has these, you know, people who trust her there and we can still go down and do randomized trials there. And because they trust us. And then once they find something to work, they'll go to the province and say, let's try it, province. Why? And so that's still happening. So it's a, it's probably a, a much more system that's respond that will respond to sort of practical, you know, problem identification and solution, uh, testing than, than it is in the U S. Um, so. It's, uh,
1: well, that's great. Yeah. I mean, uh, and I guess, you know, that, that also sort of is a, a testament to, you know, the the amount of time that you've worked in China and the number of, uh, you know, it should be, be clear to listeners, like you have like a million collaborators uh, <laughs> throughout the country who've, uh, Who've worked with you and have trained students and you know you've helped train and uh so it's uh you know it's not just kind of you as the the random like foreign expedition showing up and saying we're gonna do a little little you know test on your people it's it's a very collaborative process with uh with a lot of domestic academics.
2: Yeah, yeah. So uh, I often like to say, is, you know, our group with the capital G, so there's all the people you just said that they are Chinese collaborators and our are collaborators outside China. And we've we've done survey, probably collected over 1 to 1.5 million surveys over the past, you know, 20, 25 years, right? I've never done one of those surveys. <laughs> But mm. I, I i've got I've got great Mandarin with a Southern accent. It's a Southern California accent. I learned it stuff. And I can't go into these places and do these interviews, right? So mm. it's our it is our local collaborators, and and you know it's their PhD students and then their undergrad students that 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 do a lot of this work. You know, in return, if you go to our website and you know at our sky s c c e i stanford.edu if you go to our website and and look at publications Every single one of our publications, our Chinese colleagues are the first author or the corresponding author. I mean, and in their students are the second author. You know, they get credit for that, and we help them publish, and that's how they get promoted. So it's a, it's a, it's been a great relationship. And you know, even now with U.S.-China relation, we can't even go to China. You know, we have five big projects in the field right now and they're doing it. Right. And, um, you know,
1: um, so,
2: yeah, it's a it's a relationship that you have to you definitely have to invest in and, you know, have trust, mutual trust. In.
1: Yeah. And actually, so come to think of it now that we're um, since we're talking about uh, acknowledging collaborators, um, maybe uh, just to give due credit, could you tell us uh, more about uh, Natalie Hell's role in the book? <laughs> sort of, it's presented in, your in first person as sort of you know the story of you and your your forty plus years of experience working on China and you know the things that you found. Um, so, uh,
2: well, and Nat- Natalie worked for uh, for uh, the, the 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 group before Sky S-C-C-E-I, That's the Stanford uh, Center uh, on Economic. Uh, on China's economy and institutions. Before that, we had a group called REAP. It's still part of Sky, but it's a rural education action program, uh, also uh, based at Stanford. But um, Natalie worked with us for four or five or six years um, uh, after she graduated um, from from college and um, uh, her, her mom, they're local. So, and um, uh, she went to Williams, but but she came back and worked for us. (laughs) And, and she had been in the field, got to know our collaborators, worked in different parts of our project. And um, then we thought of this idea of the book and Natalie said, I'd like to, to, to see if I want to be a writer. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, we were very lucky to, to have support for that. And she spent, two and a half years you know writing you know this book and uh, every, it's really really well written peter <laughs> <Guess why? laughs> it is no it's I mean, really well done so it is yeah, highly, right? highly Cause readable yeah. cuz natalie is a super writer and uh, uh and and but we went back and forth and back and forth and and it's uh, you know um and, and so you know that's that's natalie and uh, um she's um Now decided after after writing a book for two that she's not sure that she wants to take up a writing career for the rest of her life. Uh, But she did. I mean, she she's top top writer, and Mm -hmm. her her ideas are in there. And you know, I'm really busy and doing a hundred other things. And she, you know, made you you know focus and kept the 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 themes to it. It's uh, you know every bit of uh, bit much as her book is is mine.
1: Great. Okay. Yeah, that's um, good to hear. It sounds like it was a uh, uh, yeah, really really useful to you, right? As a busy academic, you know, with like you said, all these different projects going on, uh, having someone who can really you know make this their central uh, thing of of writing a, a really nice, uh, very accessible book is uh, is crucial. So um, so I was asking you about the the Chinese government's reception of um, your work. Um, so let's let's also look kind of at the high level at the the flip side of that. So you know. Looking at China's new influence on the world, and you know some of the difference in values between uh, America and at least the Chinese leadership, um, you know there's some people who might be pretty happy if China's economy slowed down or or even collapsed, or at least they give that impression. Um, what what do you say to that point of view?
2: Um, well, um, I, I told I, I spent just a. Few, few lines talking about how difficult it is to work with China's government right now, top level government right um, um, when we started our center here uh, Sky, one thing we thought was well, you know, the most important relationship, economic relationship in the whole world, for many, many reasons, in many, many dimensions, is the U.S.-China, you know, economic relations, and as we know, that's been, you know, deteriorating uh, uh, rapidly in in previous years. Well, we started our center, um, you know, just about a, you know a year ago, and um, it was at that time that one of the reasons for starting is we wanted to. Take on a role and produce a public good out of our center that we were going to take, you know, the high quality academic research um, that was done on China. And we wanted to translate that into um, a, a form that was accessible Understandable and um, you know easy, uh, time-wise and and um, uh, thinking-wise to uh, to be suggest in other words to to reach out to the American business and policy-making communities and say this is what's really happening in China. You know, the problem I should have started, right. The problem is, is, you know, we're we're attacking this very important relationship based on very little understanding of what's happening in China. Um, Most of our understanding is anecdotes in the press or, you know, writings from analogs, right. And it's not based on what's really happening. So uh, what, what we promise is anything we do in our center Peter, is based on data, right? It's, mm-hmm. you we'll know, uh, it tell you what the data are and the data aren't always perfect. Sometimes they're a little old, Some sometimes that they're not perfectly representative of what's going on, but we'll tell you what that data is. And then we'll tell you what the data say. We're not going to tell you how to vote. We're not going to tell Washington congressmen how to vote on, a, on, on an initiative, but we want to tell you, you know, what's happening, right, is, you know, the Chinese public doesn't all agree with the Chinese leadership. China's not this monolithic sphere over there. And, you know, we have a policy brief, you know, called, um, you know, the uh, China's not blue or red, right? It's, it's purple, right? So, and, and people have, you know, views that, you know, say markets are good, we want more reform. Yeah, we may think Taiwan's part of China, but we don't want to, use force against it, right? And and Mm -hmm. that's what the Chinese public, a big share of the Chinese public thinks. You know, there's our colleagues here at Stanford wrote a paper on this. You know, we gave it directly to the White House, to the State Department, to the to the embassy in Beijing, uh, to to congressional staff members, right, that were working on and you know, did they Did that change their view on China? You know, we want them to have the facts, you know, that they they need to, they're going to make their, the business community is really, you know, clamped onto these. Well, you know, they're free. (laughs) We put out briefs every two weeks and, you know, they're on AI in China. They're on the impact of trade in China. They're on, you know, uh, our newest one that came out this last week is one of my papers, which is, you know, China's starting to polarize in wages. They're starting – it looks like the United States in 1980 where, you know uh, – Automation and globalization has has pulled the rug under manufacturing and construction jobs, and everybody's getting dumped into the service sector and wages are going down, right? And um, uh, for a big part of the unskilled sector, Um, professionals are still going up, right? (laughs) Silicon Valley wages are rising, right? Mm -hmm. But, uh, uh, you know, wages in the, uh, you know, for uh, uh, the, the service sector are falling, so. Um, that, that's kind of what we're doing
1: okay um, yeah that's uh, that's great and you know like you said whatever your your policy perspective the most important thing is to, to do with a, a real informational base um, so what you mentioned so you've you told us about uh, there are not enough people in schools and that's changing slowly and they're also not ready for schools so you mentioned uh, iron deficiency is one. Uh, issue than early childhood uh, education, reading. What are some of the other um, key uh, key educational kind of human capital challenges that you've uh, that you've found in your research?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, there's so so many to talk about. Uh, we spend a lot of time talking about the 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 new high schools. Um, uh, so you know, I said you know that they you know went from having uh, 15 million, you know, uh, seats in high school to now almost 30, you know, million, um, you know, seats for in high school. And most of the new ones were added as vocational, um, mm-hmm. training programs, uh, high school training programs. And, um, uh, I, you know, um, I have no problem with vocational schools. I mean, they were great in Germany, right? Mm-hmm. Um, United States, right? We have a an academic high school system almost pure, right? Where mm-hmm. where where everybody goes there. But in, in um, so what I tell China though is, I think they have what we and we've shown in our in our work is that they have the wrong ratio of training for. Actual technical schools versus basic learning skills. I think mm-hmm. they have to know more math, science. <laughs> this is a broken record, Peter. Right, math, science, uh, um, uh, computers, and just ways of thinking. Right, and and, and language skills. Right, because um, so so in in two thousand fifteen, we we went to a bunch of vocational schools and looked at the books that they had been using between 2005 and 2015. Mm -hmm. And one of, one of the majors was repairing public fixed line telephones. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are no public fixed line telephones anymore as everybody knows. Right. Uh, tube tvs right i mean there's no tube tvs repairing internal combustion engines for i mean china produces more electrical vehicles than anyone and and you need compute you need to have computer skills to diagnose what the problem is you need to get online and order parts and then i mean if you don't know computers and science and have language skills you can't even be an auto mechanic anymore
1: right Right. i mean this is really uh, in a sense worse than i thought because i mean you, you know. I thought you were going to say, you know, they're learning vocational stuff like, you know, how to fix someone's cell phone or their toilet or whatever, which, you know, is useful, but, uh, but you know, may become outdated. But you're saying they're learning stuff in, in many cases that is already no longer a skill that, that people need.
0: Right.
2: Well, then they moved on and then, then they're working on cell phones. But, you right. know, I mean, are we going to have cell phones in five years or 10 years? You know, we're going to, you know, we're going to have, you know, eyeglass phones or, you know, is, are we going to get really good watches that everybody's going to use? And then, but, but if, if they, if they know math and science and they know, have language skills and mm-hmm. science skills, if, if it goes from, you know, from, from, Flip phones to smartphones to smart watches to you know little chips embedded in our fingernails, right? Um, they'll be able to learn these new skills, right? Learn how to learn. That's what they don't have, right? And so. Um, you know, and China has, you know, is automating at a massively fast pace. So, you know, um, if, if you don't have the skills to go in and work with, you know, the computer operated textile machines, you know, they don't need textile workers anymore, right? They need computer technicians, right? They don't need to be computer scientists, but they need to have people that know how to operate these machines and then the machines are changing all the time. And then the programs are changing. So you got to learn how to learn to, to, to change with this. And, you know, I, I keep telling him, go to Germany and see how they run their vocational education program. Because guess what? In vocational high school, they spend 80% of their time on math, science and computers, right? And 20% of their time on, you know, learning carpentry or, or whatever. Right. And um, that, you know, once they get into vocational college, yeah, then they start, you know, focusing, but you need to teach a lot more. Of course, then the principals come back to me and says, our kids can't learn that. (laughs) Ah, we got to go back to zero to three. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's why we spend 80% of our time with zero to
1: three, Peter. Right. Right. Yeah. But you know, I guess you could probably make similar arguments in the U S but then again, you you also don't want to have, you know, like you said, massive parts of the population who've been underserved their whole lives. And, uh, you can't just write them off either so it's a it's a tough, <laughs> tough thing to yeah. balance
2: w- w- what happens when mexico tried to write them off right that when they're 15 million people and you know mexico was the fastest growing country in the one of the fastest growing countries in the world in the 70s and 80s mm-hmm. it was called the next taiwan
1: <laughs> okay mm-hmm.
2: and then you know globalization happened and all the wages rose in mexico all the factories they moved happened to move to china right and mm-hmm. 15 15 million people were put out of a job and what happened well five million people came to america five million people in china aren't going to be able to come to america right mm. Exactly. five million people went into the gig you know they went into washing windows flipping tortillas and you know landscaping and mm. five million people went into organized crime and you know mexico went from one of the safest countries in the world china is one of the safest countries in the world right now to, you know, one of the most, you know, crime ridden ones. And uh, you don't think that could, not triads were invented in China. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, that they have a possibility of coming back. So.
1: Well, that's a, that's a scary prospect. Um, so um, well, we're just about uh, out of time. Um, any, any last uh, thoughts you want to leave people with?
2: well i i i often say um uh, I, I really appreciate it this has been been a fun conversation um but i um I often say when people ask me, do you really think that's going to happen? What's the probability of, of, of this sort of poorly educated labor force, um, you know, bringing China to its knees and, you know, and I've I've studied China for 40 years and they've, they've come through, you know, five or six miracles (laughs) where everybody thought it was going to hurt them. Mm
1: -hmm. And then
2: I say, okay, okay. Let's, let's say there's only a 5% probability of this bringing China down. I, I think it's Twenty percent or thirty percent, okay. Uh, but it's this is a What do you do when you face a, a probability of you know of a big problem? Oh, you buy insurance, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I think China needs to buy insurance on this. And guess what? Instead of paying some insurance company, which you know I hate paying insurance. I'm sure you hate paying insurance, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this insurance is giving, you know. Early childhood development, you know, uh, 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 quality primary, secondary education to kids, improving their health, improving their nutrition, and and I'm talking about a massive effort, right? And and it has to be, you know, the central government has to spend the money on it. Uh, where do they get their money? It's, you know. You figured out, you know, let's stop building high speed rails and put it into education. Let's let's go to the moon in 2040 instead of 2030. Let's make hard decisions. But I think that's what we're going to. And guess what? If you didn't need that insurance policy, think about the, the improvements of life of those people. Right. But it may keep you from collapsing. So that's what you know, that's why I wrote the book. I don't want China to collapse. I, I want them to be a transparent. I want them to be, you know, a, 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 a solid citizen of the world, but given that transformation, I want them to succeed. You know, I have a lot of friends there. <laughs> so.
1: Yeah, no, it's a uh, really, really important issue. And obviously, you know, it uh, China obviously can't, their, their leaders can't just let them, you know, let the thing fall apart. And, uh, and certainly from the global, global perspective, you know, the world economy hinges uh, uh, so much on what happens in China. So, you know, even if the, the sort of war hawks may feel like they'd like China to be weaker, if that involved their economy uh, slowing or collapsing, that's really going to affect everyone uh, in the U.S. and around the world as well. So yeah. Not, yeah. Really a, not really a win, um, uh, except in the, the very narrowest of, of senses. Um, all right. Well, well. Thanks so much for uh, for taking the time to uh, to talk to me today. Um, I really enjoyed the conversation.
2: Thank you, Peter. It's always uh, great fun and um, uh, it, uh, pushed me in some new directions too. So, thank you very much.